It's Just Business with Steve Thomas and your host, Chris Larry. Welcome to another episode of It's Just Business on the Hogside Network, the show where we look at the dollars and cents of the sports, media, business, industrial complex. And because the spirit of the season, let me put in a quick plug. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple, please give us a or review, uh, even if it's a negative one, quite frankly, you know, throw your darts or throw, <laughs> throw your uh, hugs and kisses. But anyway, rate and review us that way. Uh, and with that commercial uh, plug out of the way, Steve, how are you doing today? Okay. So you're saying even if they say these two idiots don't know what the heck they're talking about, please write that anyway. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, engagement is key. <laughs> well, and, and I think you finally fixed... We, we switched over to iCast a while ago, and looks like now we finally got all the various streaming platforms straightened out now, Spotify, Apple, and everything, under the name It's Just Business. We were under the Hogstye before, which wasn't good, but now we're separate on all the platforms you can think of. Maybe not iHeartRadio, but beyond that, I think we're on everything now. Uh, yeah, I believe. I actually think we're on iHeart too. But yeah, I'm not quite sure what that was. But I was able to uh, eventually digitally fix it without finding the culprit. And, and thanks um, to that random guy. But yeah, so guy it should be who, showing up. Thanks to that random guy who wrote in and said, "Hey, I can't get you on whatever platform it was," because that generated a fix. So thanks to Chris for figuring all that out as well. Um, yeah, no, I'm uh, fine. I'm not sure that guy is getting his problem fixed, but he still was our canary. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, it was it was him that generated, you know, the look into it. So I am fine. How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, normal. Good. Fine. Restful. How about you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, we care about you people because we're doing this. We're recording this on our, in the middle of our Thanksgiving weekend. So I want you all to appreciate the fact that we're taking our valuable time to talk about sports business during this week. No, but did you? It, so I don't need to hear a litany of food was it or is there anything unusual about the thanksgiving this year no my uh my wife and i've got it down to a a, a a science it wasn't even stressful yeah mine was pretty normal too but that's okay <laughs> and and as as always i'm always excited about shorts weather 24 you know 12 months a year as i've repeatedly said so the fact that i was wearing shorts is is even is even better you know i'm not all about the fall i'm about like summer 12 months a year which is possibly why I'm in South Texas. Yes. Uh, no, winter is uh, winter has dawned here uh, on the Northeast. So I have none of those none of those enjoyments. It was all unpacking all of the heaviest uh, winter clothes. So did you have do you have any very short opinions about Jack Del Rio's firing from his job as defensive coordinator of the Washington Seawards? Uh, it was. Probably two years too late, considering that everything you needed to know about his version of a modern defense uh, in the 2020s, we knew in the 2021 season. So the fact that you're cleaning up messes that were very clear at the time um, when they were also this horribly historically bad, um, you know, better late than never, I guess. Uh, You know, but all of this is under under this is under the umbrella that 
this is two ownerships. Nothing's the same. This was always a lame duck season. So like getting too upset about the machinations of week to week while this we already won the Super Bowl in July is kind of silly. Yeah, personally, I think this is akin to uh, Ron Rivera sending a flunky out to go put the deck chairs in after the boat already hit the iceberg. You know, I don't think it really matters that much. So we'll see, you know, next year. But I think this whole staff will be gone next year and we'll be talking about somebody else. Yeah, which which is is what we always knew was going to be the real excitement here in the first like 18 months of the Josh Harris group reign. However, one little kind of it's just business style angle on this is I do think the fact that Ron was willing to cut and jettison Jack Del Rio shows you that Ron still thinks there is a potential path for him in the organization in two ways. One, uh, that he remains in the organization at some level of executive leadership. Think the sort of new version of Doug Williams, um, where he gets to write a legacy and helping this team kind of get back on its feet from the front office. Uh, I'm not saying general manager, but some, some figurehead in the front office. Or that he gets to write his own exit with a resignation at the end of the year. And so to me, because if he was ride or die with Del Rio and knew he was going either way, he would probably would have said, I'm not firing Jack. I have to get rid of both of us. But the fact that he was willing to cut the throat and throw them overboard Game of Thrones style tells me that Ron still thinks there's some personal path for him that he's preserving. Well, maybe uh, that may be his his thought process. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying that's his angle. Okay, that yeah, might be his angle. And in terms of the fans, it's like, you know, the immortal words of Motley Crue. Don't go away, man. Just go away. Uh, you know, I think that's, I think, what the fans want. They, his his relationship with the fan base is unsalvageable at this point, I think. Um, but the, the sad part about Ron Rivera um, – potentially maintaining a role in the in the organization is that i think his biggest football sin has been in the front office not in the coaching booth you know he's been an atrocious general manager i think mismanaged the roster all kinds of stuff so if i had to keep one i would keep if i was forced to keep ron rivera the coach or ron rivera the gm i'd keep ron rivera the coach before i would the gm so i actually think if he's going to go he needs to just matriculate out the building rapidly that's what i would advise yeah, let me be clear. Neither one of those things are things that I would like to see. It happen. might be his play. Uh, I mean, I know what you're but, saying. But yeah, it I think it's his play, play though. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's just what it showed me. Oh, interesting. You're So with five weeks left to go, you're willing to, you know, sacrifice Jack Del Rio, even though you should have, you know, you've, you've blown past 17 opportunities to do the same. Well, it might. And also, we don't know what really happened either. Just because he said, they said, you know, Rivera went to Harris doesn't mean that's what happened. You know, it could have been. Josh here are saying, do it, and you can do it in a way that, you know, you want to, but either way, he's gone. I mean, who knows? You know, we're not there. Yeah, we're not there. It won't um, matter either way towards this season. No, no, not at all. Very little. Um, the only thing is, I think this has been, in some ways, the worst-case scenario for Josh Harris for this year, because, and I don't mean the final record. I think the final of 
what kind of vibes a final record give off are important. If they had won a couple easy home games against the Giants and the Bears, had some fun, build some momentum, and lose the close games to good teams and still end up with six or seven wins, um, but some better home product, not having to debate who's getting fired, you know, and young players, and then you have the Sam Howness of it all. There were versions of this that Josh Harris needed to build a little momentum. He can get over whatever. I'm not saying it's going to be like, you know, a big a big wave crashing on him, but it is to me the worst case scenario season where it kind of throws some cold water on on his momentum that he but he's going to have to completely rebuild, but we knew that anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um two things and then we'll move on here. One, I think it's a bit ironic that the team has been worse at home than they have on the road, which is to your point, the opposite of what you wanted. If you had had some good games at home, you know, played some good teams tough and then just kind of cratered on the road, that would have been one thing. But the idea of being so bad, <laughs> you know, at home, I mean, the last home game they won was week one against the Cardinals, you know, Arizona Cardinals. Right. You invite one of those 250 player alumni early in the season. <laughs> that was the Chicago game, I think. And, and then they just got terrible. <laughs> by a you know, sub SEC team. So, yeah, yeah not good. exactly. And then the second point is, I think what this season has shown that that the entire roster needs to needs to go. It needs to be scrapped and start over. The defense, they put a ton of um, resources into the defense, and the defense isn't working, including the star players they've signed. If you notice, Josh, um, John Allen and Deron Payne, to a lesser extent Payne than Allen, they haven't really done much impactful all year. They trade away the ends. The secondary sucks. The linebackers aren't really linebackers. I mean, the whole team needs to go. You know, so that's my thought. I, I'm a, I, I don't disagree and I'm not connect. You know, I'd say whatever moves that they make, I'll judge on the move itself, not on you can't get rid of X, Y or Z. However, I think the coaching over the last well, the whole Ron Rivera era has been so poor and so not in line with how the modern NFL works that I can't judge these players. To me, it's an incomplete picture. See, I tend to always, I tend to more blame the players because it's not the coaching that made you blow coverage. It's not the coaching that prevents the defensive tackles from beating one on one. Yeah, you know, their their offensive linemen. So I tend to blame the players as much or more than the coaching sometimes. But that's just me. It's the whole lot of them. Need, they need to start over. Even Terry McLaurin has had a down year. I mean, even he, I wouldn't even be mad if um, they let him go to or, you know, traded him for decent assets or something. Oh, yeah. A- everything's on the table. But I also think when you see the John Allen's and Terry McLaurin struggling to this structural reason that they're that I think that there are it's a systematic problem which would tend to lead say leadership certainly so yeah Um, but they all everything's bad and everything should be changed but you can't also turn over 53 players they're gonna have to find some people on the current roster (laughs) (laughs) somebody needs to stay (laughs) yeah anyway so put that to bed um but we will stay in the realm of the NFL um oh just an aside here as we transition in Amazon and Black Friday even Dallas whooping Washington still pulled the 44 million people. Like they, it, it, they, they still had a whopping uh, viewership. Yeah, but remember that game was not a blowout till the end, till the fourth yeah. quarter. It was 20 to 10 Fair. 
in the end of the third quarter. So it's not if it started out a blow, I'd been more impressed. But one, it's also Dallas, and Dallas ratings are impervious to downturns. Uh, you know, they're the most. Yeah, po- it is that magic hour of that Thanksgiving threesome is that 4:30 kickoff. Yeah, it was the premier game or the premier time slot. I know Washington fans don't want to hear it, but they are the NFL's premier franchise in terms of fan base. So you could have them out there playing a, you know, JV team. It would have mattered. I I think it might have been Kevin Sheehan that that posited this, but had an interesting take about why Washington has played Dallas so many times in the last like ten or twelve years. And it's not oh the rivalry all that because I think it's the Globetrotters versus the Harlem Generals, if you ask me. Well, that's part of it. But he basically said that the networks know they're going to get a huge Dallas rating Thanksgiving 430. They don't need to put the Eagles or the 49ers. Two good teams to get ratings. Right. They need that. They need that on a random Sunday throughout the season. Right. You put or, you know, or a Sunday night you put that you, you know, so they can put a Patsy. Put the hapless Patsy Washington team out there and still do well. Interesting. Which just still has like the, the fumes of the rivalry and least seems like a whiff of an important game. But the reality is they'll maintain their number there and save the premier teams for other slots. That's a really insightful, insightful view there. I hadn't ever really thought of that. Uh, you know, that is that's probably very, very true because it's not a rivalry. You know, it's not a rivalry. And it's a one way rivalry and fan base. I live in Texas. You know, Dallas fans don't care about Washington at all. You know, because it's a guaranteed win for them in their in their mind. Um, so that's a really insightful point. Who was that? Kevin Sheehan said that. Yeah, that's a good point. I I, I think part of it is the Globe Trotters versus the Generals is part of it, but I like his point better. I think. Well, I don't think those are. I think they're probably you know the parts of the same point almost. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So anyway, let's talk about a completely manufactured game, which was the well, not the technically the first ever, but you know, let's say first in the modern era, first, first in, in multiple you know, generations plus years, yeah, yeah, uh, that we've had a Black Friday game outside of the COVID scheduling year. I don't know, you know, you do, for Friday NFL games are just not a thing. So, so we knew this was coming. Uh, we knew Amazon was going to make this just a huge kind of manufactured event, of which Black Friday is a manufactured event to begin with. So we're just talking about layers of, of, of manufacturing here on money, uh, on money, different metaphors. But it seems like the early returns are that it did exactly what it was supposed to do. And if I'm Amazon, I'm kind of I'm kind of feeling my oats here off this. Yeah, so let's start off with, there's a bunch of articles and we have, but there was a video I thought kind of summarized this maybe the best, and it was it's on CNBC um, called The Basis of Our Sports Investment is to Make Prime More Valuable, says Amazon's Jay Marine. And, Jay, and this is Friday, November 24th. Jay Marine is Amazon VP and Global Head of Sports. And, and it's like a seven-half-minute video. But the, the the gist of it is that he is saying that Amazon is getting into sports to make Amazon Prime more valuable. And, and he couches it in sort of, uh, you know, consumer-friendly language. But what he's really saying is if we cram more things into an Amazon membership, more of you will subscribe to it. 
you know, and they did some interesting things in this. I didn't watch this broadcast. I didn't realize until this morning that it was free. <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm not an Amazon prime member. Um, and so I can't watch this stuff, but apparently they crammed a bunch of QR codes into the broadcast, you know, on a rolling scroll. Um, there's another column here, which Chris will get pulled up here. Um, while I'm talking, um, that is talking about how, um, they had different advertisements structures based on who was watching it, you know, like for the Amazon prime members. And then there was a different set of, of, um, ads and rolling scrolls and whatnot, depending on how you're accessing it, I guess. Um, so that is interesting, but, but I think this speaks to the larger point, which we've talked about from the beginning, which is why was Amazon willing to spend $11 billion on this, which was way more than anybody else spent. Well, it wasn't just because what's his face? The Amazon guy uh, loves football. It's because they're trying to make their grow their platform um, and they're tying everything into prime. And that's what this Jay Marine guy, the Amazon VP was saying. So it, and the other thing he said was the ratings are up 26%. And he didn't really say, I'm assuming what he's talking about is 26% over last year. They didn't really say, but I'm assuming that's what it was. So a huge success and an interesting, um, interesting play by Amazon to kind of own a day, you know, another day for football. Thoughts? Well, I think if you want to do, if you, if you have any uh, business students out there, you need to look for uh, a paper idea, you know, look at, you know, what Amazon, the redefinition of vertical integration that Amazon is doing, you know, with Black Friday as your, as your case study, because, you know, it really is brilliant. So you take the thing that keeps more people watching, whether they're on the phone, whether they're on their TV, wherever, who cares? watching your platform as it streamlines your biggest sale day into your membership program while while going and asking for more money by all those advertisers who want those eyeballs as well uh, more than your average Thursday night game so you're getting everything and you get your own what they call owned media channels for your own sales. So whether that's Amazon Web Services or Prime or direct sales or Audible, you know, so they also have their own products that they're also now getting those same prime eyeball, the, the, the max eyeballs, not capital P prime, max eyeballs. And they're getting a reduced, they're getting, they're getting that ad channel for free because they own it. So there isn't a way in which Amazon isn't just absolutely farming cash here. They paid a hundred million dollars for this specific right to this Black Friday game. The average about the average commercial time as estimated in January of 2023. So before this season kicked off that the average Thursday night Amazon spot was $700,000. So um, all you got to do is plug that in and they needed to sell 143 ads to break even on just the ad revenue for the cost of the game. So the cost of the thing that they're putting in front of everybody else to just bring in multiple revenue streams, their outlay was a hundred million. There's a, about, I think there's something like a hundred commercials in an average NFL broadcast. But if you factor in that I'm probably undercutting the ad buy 
plus 90 minutes of pregame, which aren't going to be as much um, revenue, but does extend it, they probably covered their nut on pure advertising revenue or got themselves 80% there, which is just basically basically the same. And then all these other revenue streams that we'll talk about or we have talked about, that's just profit at that it's point. It's actually brilliant, yeah, you know, because all these major networks just rely on just advertising alone. That's their source of revenue, whereas was Amazon is smart enough to put on sports broadcasts, cover their expenses um, in the form of advertising, all for the purpose of selling more Amazon products. So there's their real profit. It's actually brilliant. And and the call I found the column where they were talking about the the unique nature of these ads. So this is in a Forbes. Um, how the ad breaks of Amazon's Black Friday NFL game will be different by Akiri Masters from the 24th of November. And they use a term I'd never heard before in this audience-based creative. Have you heard this term before? That is, that's new to me. Um, no, not that particular term. And I think this this may be the first real rollout of it. There's, you know, this is not a, this is, you know, they might have this on very, like, it may be a beta kind of beta scale. testing. Yeah, and so I'm just going to – so to quote the column, Kiri Master's column, Amazon will leverage its new ad capability, audience-based creative. This allows brands to target different audience segments with different messages and actions all in the same time slot. And it says, uh, for example, according to Ad Age, Bose will show three different ads using Amazon's ad technology, one created for non-Prime members, two others shown to Prime members displaying different products. And so they're really – this is like true like – Big Brother, you know, you know, in the form of Amazon, not the government, spying on you, and and it knows apparently who's watching, and it can tailor the ads based on. It's kind of the advanced form of cookies on your web browser, a little bit. I think that's the the. I think that's where they're kind of going with this. And so, like Bose will show the non-prime ad to me. They'll show the prime ad to one of the two prime ads to Chris because he's a member. But if he's like bought a lot of audio video, he may get one one ad and whereas someone else will get another. That is, one, it's the future, and two, it's brilliant. Yeah, and then the same, and this woman, uh, and, and Masters. Yeah, she's a she's a she's a right columnist for Forbes, but her day job, so to speak, is um, she's an ad tech executive. So and so she's more in the she's more in the business side of this. So this is a pretty good analysis. And one thing I like that she she said sort of the second thing building off this audience based creative effect is that 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 means that also diversifies the the kinds of advertisers because now you can actually micro slice those slots right so it's one thing to sell to coke or to budweiser you know one slot but now but now you might still collect from budweiser but you might slice that right so you know you're starting to you know you're basically being able to sell multiple spots in one slot so it now also opens up the advertisers who didn't think they could get anywhere near the nfl you're actually offering them a path yeah now there's a in this same column that i just cited there's a what looks like an excel spreadsheet that's cut yeah. and paste <laughs> into this thing um and it's and it has all of the ad breaks there's 25 of them and then there's five uh six separate um columns that i guess are the different are the different um 
the different ad setups depending on viewership. It's a bit hard to read in here, but most of them are the same advertise and the same advertiser in the same spot, but some aren't. And then it has differences, uh, you know, based on who's prime or not. For example, break twelve is Columbia, and four of them are just says just Columbia, but one of them says Columbia with QR code. Then one of them says press OK if you want to something. And so that's breaking it up depending on who it is. And that's that's the kind of thing we see in here. And and there's more of it in there. So this is certainly the future. This is going to be at some point, um, you know, they're all going to be able to do this. I'm surprised there's technology isn't there now. Honestly, I'm surprised it took Amazon to be, to be the one to figure it out. But this is this well, they, is a, they figured this is, it out. They've already they did sort of figure it out from when you're like shopping on Amazon. So it's just like it's their regular sort of spyware ad tech that they've been kind of working on for years within their platform now on steroids now you know gobbling up those you know that that revenue from places outside of them but basically it's on the strength of we can slice and dice and direct our data a myriad of ways we've been doing it for years now we're scaling it up and charging you to do it yeah exactly i mean for those of you who are concerned about online privacy just know that like amazon and google and some others know more about you than your own family <laughs> you know there you are on files on here uh, you know on their servers uh it's it's uh, to be honest it scares me a little bit i don't really like it i'm the type though that turns off all the cookies and and you know does non-personalize all the ads the maximum extent possible but look this is just you know it's just a feature so but the to continue on with this column it says prime membership the the next section is prime memberships will be the signups will be the wild card um meaning that there's your profit right in addition to boost of boost of um sales during the game it's also um you know because they gave it away for free so there's going to be an additional uh boost of amazon prime membership signups and in like all most signups, most people never, even if they don't use it, they don't get rid of it. And so they've kind of got you on the hook for a number of years if you sign up once. Um, and then it's talking about digitally influenced sales, which we've kind of already been over. So it's I, I think this is the future. It's brilliant. I, I think even networks on cable will be able to do this at some point fairly soon. Well, anyone can slap a QR code on anything, right? So no, I'm not talking about QR codes. I'm talking. Oh, you mean about, the directed advertising? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it's not. You know, and, and to some degree, they're probably on their own streaming services. They're doing smaller versions of it already, anyway. So yeah, no, this I is think the beta, again, yeah. this is kind of the beta test of it almost. And I tuned into the game not because I mean because the game was a dog, you know, which everyone knew. I mean, I guess it looks good with Aaron Rodgers as a jet, but like by the time we roll into Thanksgiving weekend, the, the game with was the third string like, bomb that the Jets were throwing out there against a top quality yeah, yeah, team like, like the 60 Dolphins. Sixty yards through four quarters, <laughs> something like that, passing yards. So yeah, so I and I just but I did tune in to. to a, you know for a while to see like what you know how they were going to do it and the qr code was you know was on my tv within 45 seconds of me turning it on that's that's what they want did you use a qr code no no i bought nothing congratulations yeah you didn't get sucked um, into it but i have one no, more thing I, before I, we move on though on this the black friday game all by itself is another marketing brilliant marketing move i think because it's it's always better to have sports on holidays more people around to watch them 
Um, Black Friday in particular, I think, is great because, look, there's a lot of people don't want to go shop. I certainly don't want to go shop, and certainly not on Black Friday. And so it's, I think it's a great day to catch a bunch of people sitting at home, and it's a day that nobody else has captured. NBA has never done a ton on Black Friday. Um, the National Hockey League hasn't either, and they're not in the same league anyway. So while I do think the NFL is constantly in danger of oversaturating the market, um, and they need to be careful about that. This one particular hot, I think it's it's great, and they ought to keep doing it. Amazon or no Amazon? Yeah, and you know, and Amazon was a, here's the, here's the the two way banditness of Amazon here, right? So they basically drive people from the brick and mortars, which is obviously Amazon's been at war on brick and mortars since almost it existed. But just think about th- this is like. This is like nuclear cyber drones type stuff. So you have they go and they continue to pull people out of brick and mortars and then they sell those brick and mortars the right to be on their airwaves, essentially. So Target. Right. You basically, you know, because Target loved those scenes of everyone running into Target and, all, you know, like, the, you know, and you know all that. So now that's turned into even more of not a thing. And they turn around and tell Target that they've got to buy time, uh, you know, on our channel. So we've we've sucked all the people out of your store, and then we're making you purchase airtime just so you can stay competitive in the in the online version. Well, not only that, but also for the smaller retailers who put their products on Amazon, Amazon will intentionally cram down, you know, the listings on those competitors' products to to boost. Amazon own products, you know, so pay us to be on our site. And then by the way, we're going to cram, you know, we're going to cram you down the listing so you can't sell as much, uh, you know, right. for your, for your money. We're used to them doing it to the sort of, you know, long tail of mom and pops or even mid-sized retailers. Now they're doing it to the big boys. Exactly. Cause like, you know, Target's going to advertise, come buy this clothing at Target. Well, Amazon is going to run a QR code right under it, under the same ad for clothes at Amazon. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's. I, so there you go. So if you're good. <laughs> well, one, one last thing. So what I've always wondered, I think we have mentioned this before, is Congress, not that I'm really a. I support this necessarily, but is Congress eventually going to break Amazon up? You know, if, as a non-competitive monopoly, I've wondered this because they are in so much and they're spending to all kinds of things. It really makes me wonder if we're going to see Congress step in at some point. Um, well, I, I think they should, as a philosophical thing. But do I think and I think they'll be saber rattling about it pretty constantly, but you need a pretty you need a pretty wide bipartisan effort probably to get something with teeth across the finish line. And I don't I don't see a path there, at least in our current situation. Yeah, but, uh, you know, the idea that Amazon owns 75 percent of the Internet. And a significant portion of online sales, uh, they would that what would make the most sense probably is to separate out the online, the uh, website, the Amazon Web Services into its own entity entirely. That would solve a lot of problems, I think. Yeah, you'd need you'd need teeth with re- regulation with teeth that like was sort of more mid stack. You know, the things that really are kind of in the middle of contracts, you'd need to go and clean and, and, and start to block Amazon from doing a bunch of that stuff. Yeah, and then you could like separate the Amazon 
broadcast services into another entity if you wanted and then just have keep the original online sales as a separate i mean i think that's probably the future at some point i don't think the government will do it but bezos is now on his third wife i think or he's got a gauge for the second time at minimum he's already given that first one you know she's kind of a famous philanthropist now because she's just like you know writing giant it's checks gotta be so the second in my wife. world yeah i don't think it's a third, this is the, but Second. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. Let's call it second. So, and I don't know if he has kids or not. He might, he must, but I think, you know, he's the, he's Charlemagne, right? You know, the, the, the the empire of Charlemagne will not be maintained once the kids, once you have to divide it amongst the kids and vassals upon Charlemagne's death. So I think it, yeah, not to be morbid, but I think it'll be the death of Bezos is be with where you'll start to see, you know, these things get broken up and, you know, things turn into France, Germany and Prussia. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's that that may be true. I'm trying to sort through um, not to get medieval on everyone. <laughs> um, OK, so I think it's a second wife because according to Wikipedia, because Wikipedia is already on, you know, always right. Um, the first wife who you're talking about, the philanthropist, was Mackenzie, and it says they were right. getting divorced after 25 years. So if he had a wife before that, it was short-lived, you know, a long time ago, I guess. And the woman he's now engaged to, I think, is Lauren Sanchez, maybe. It doesn't say anything about children, so I'm not sure about that. But anyway, even if he doesn't have children, whoever inherits his estate isn't going to be as smart as Bezos and isn't going to be able to hold it all together in the same way because you know, they never do. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, no, it, it, these, these, these uh, dynasties <laughs> in all different fields and, uh, and maneuvers don't generally last once the, you know, or have a hard time lasting once the uh, emperor is dead. If you want the perfect sports-related example, look at the Yankees. George Steinbrenner, brilliant owner, ruled with an iron fist, um, died, his children are dumb, and the team has been the same since. You know, that's a perfect example. In Washington fans, Jack can't cook. Jack can't cook dies. The son can't figure out how to do it. And we've just descended into three decades of Snyder madness, you know. Yeah, no. So there you go. Um, so on to uh, Formula One. You do a hard. Well, actually, there's no real hard turns of Formula One. But they do a lot of those snake turns that they have through like the urban environments. You can't um, have a hard to, turn at 200 miles an hour. No, that's very, very true. <laughs> um, so we've seen sort of a meteoric rise over the last two or three years of F1 racing. Um, and now it's kind of set to be have Las Vegas as its, as its home, and is is it a crown jewel in Vegas's emergence of uh, America's premier sports city, or they, at least their goals to become that? Well, uh, and this is kind of the, I, I think this is F one's biggest foyer into the United States, really. Uh, you know, and it's the first time I think it's really gotten a lot of attention. There's another bunch of stories. The first one I stumbled on. Um, was another one on CNBC, how Formula One accidentally helped Las Vegas workers land the best contract ever by Salil Kapoor, um, the dated the 22nd of November. And part of this is about how the, you know, a bunch of the local worker unions got a bunch of large contracts as a result of the presence of F1. Um, but there's another, but there's, um, 
that we have found a bunch of other columns on here too. Um, one of them is on gpfans.com. Chris found this Steiner fires back at declining USF one audience claims. This is the one that's getting into possibly F one just not having really a good season. But before we get into that, I want to dive into some of the interesting numbers in here. Um, which now, of course, I can't find. Give me one second, because... Uh, where is it? Okay, here we go. This is from The Athletic. This was the one I was I meant to start with in the first place. Okay. Um, this one is the $500 million Vegas GP by the numbers, 135 cocktails and 1.3 million viewers. Alex Davies, The Athletic, November 22nd. And so here is they're talking about some of the numbers. Fiscal impact, $100 million in tax revenue based on the presence of F1. That's just tax revenue alone, $100 million. Um, $1.2 billion in total economic benefits to the um, Las Vegas area. $966 million and $316 million spent in event and operations and support costs. Um, double the original estimate of $600 million. Um, you know, two hundred million dollars in vouchers, two hundred dollar vouchers from the race store. So there's um, hundred and five. The 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 thing they built to hold the facility had a total seating capacity of one hundred and five thousand. And for those of you wondering, the average NFL stadium is like between sixty five and seventy five thousand. So this is a huge place, and a lot of to be fair, a lot of NASCAR events have this about this much too, but. These are huge costs of tickets. $5,000 a day to hang out in something called the Paddock Club. $500 a day for general admission. $1,500 a day for um, grandstand. Um, ESPN reported 1.3 million viewers from 1 a.m. to 3.05 a.m., meaning the middle of the night. Um, so all of that sounds great. But, Chris, I mean, talk. you're the one that noticed the potential downturn a little bit. So why don't you get into that? Well, I just that there's been a, you know, and we sort of have our radars up for, you know, these kinds of sports business stories. And, and about like four or five weeks ago, I just started noticing, you know, kind of these headlines and trends of like, oh, is the F1 bounce over? Um, you know, is this, is it sort of audience interest sustainable? Um, even some articles that started to look at, is this an overplay by Vegas? And I think these are actually two distinct issues. So one what is the real audience for F1 uh, racing in the United States? This, you know, F1 is not new. It's been around, uh, you know, forever. And in fact, I think that it's gone through little ups and downs of of popularity in in the past. But there's definitely been a three year rise of it um, of late. I think driven a lot by some. I think Netflix had a reality show, and there has been more efforts to kind of go underneath the helmet and to get uh, you know look at who these racers are. It is very distinct in style from NASCAR. So if you're you know, it's like. If you're a racing fan, then it, it gives you more diverse things. Just like if you're a sports fan, you can watch basketball and football almost to a degree, right? They're both games, but that's kind of where the differences start. You know, I mean, uh, you know, th there really is a massive amount of difference. Um, the cars, the engineering, the kind of uh, the tracks, the who's racing. And F1 has traditionally been a very European centered sport. So it's always ha felt a little bit 
and in fact was an import into American audiences. So, you know, has this uptick is it sustainable and then you look at vegas you know is this something where they just kind of build themselves as the capital of f1 in america and that's a market for them um and their quest to become a sports town but still fairly parochial or are they an outpost for a growing interest in f1 in america i think that's where for vegas it's interesting which way it cuts um but you know, apparently their their Nielsen ratings for however and wherever they are are down this year. The real nerds of the sport will tell you it's because you have an uncompetitive um, year in terms of they do like kind of a cup, you know, where you points kind of what NASCAR has gone to over the last couple of years. So there's like a grand champion type of thing. Um, and apparently one uh, team has just ran away with that. There's no drama on who's winning that. So it could just be the changing winds of a competitive sport. And sometimes you just have dog seasons. Yeah, I mean, but they've got work to do in the United States, uh, you know, because because F one has always had kind of a European feel to it, but it's also, it seems to me, had kind of a moneyed kind of hoity-toity kind of vibe to it a little bit, sort of like the Kentucky Derby, uh, you know, in the VIP section of the Kentucky Derby on kind of a mass scale, a lot of wealthy people in fancy outfits. And that's kind of what F1 is. Whereas NASCAR has always had a Southern United States kind of every man sort of vibe to it. And so um, it's a different, it's a different audience set. And the other thing is like from a racing standpoint, um, you know, F1 is at another level from NASCAR. Like you have NASCAR, you, you have NASCAR guys um, saying, you know, every once in a while we'll be asked, why don't you drive F1? And they say, you don't just walk into F1. You know, you don't just do that. So, again, I, I think to, to, to summarize here, you know, it's a different market set right now. It does F1 does not have a broad appeal. It, it appeals to... I think much like the Kentucky Derby, the the moneyed, fancy fancy has a moneyed kind of fancy vibe to it, whereas NASCAR has exact opposite. And so I think that's what they're facing. They need to make it more accessible to everybody. Part of that strategy is to put it in Vegas, where everybody loves Vegas. Yeah, and I think if they, you know, I think for Vegas, it's part of a multi-sport strategy right they obviously now have the nfl they have a brand new stadium in the nfl um they obviously the the vegas knights were the you know really showed that sports could work in vegas um and are still very popular um and uh, you know the oakland athletics um is going is going are moving from they're, they're following the raiders path they're going from oakland to vegas as well so you you couple that um with new arenas so they can host special things right over time whether the ncaa's or bowl games or whatever and they add formula one racing you know does it just be you know if they're the capital of f1 racing in america that might be enough for vegas right even if the the popularity of f1 broadly in america kind of ebbs and flows i think what was interesting is that i think it was these under the helmet things with f1 that did that i think that's why you had a and i think also quite frankly i think those things came out they were kind of pandemic filler and where people were looking to expand their media consumption so you're going to see a little bit of retraction we're seeing that you see that in a lot of places so but i do think they 
use that time wisely and people got they the the drivers the teams did become more accessible um and people could find them and it is i find it you know i'm not a big motor racing guy but i find it just more interesting from a viewing standpoint than nascar because in nascar they just go around in a circle right like that it's a little hard to take i i kind of like the like streaming through an urban environment or like the windy roads or like a little bit more interesting course it's a little more interesting yeah um for sure and so i I think it can catch on i my point though is that it's just i think it has a kind of a niche appeal right now but i'd like to point out discuss a little bit here um who is in charge of kind of the or group of people what group of people are in charge of las vegas's kind of grand master marketing strategy because whoever it is (laughs) needs a raise uh, you know, think about this. If you go back a couple of dec- decades ago, Vegas was just a gambling town and, you know, semi-legal debauchery, uh, you know, prostitution and some things like that. And they have expanded. One, the the gambling part got dramatically, dramatically bigger, dramatically bigger and, and fancier and nicer. They had much more. It wasn't just a series of, um, you know, magicians, you know, doing residencies, huge national music acts, all that fancy hotels. None of that stuff was there in the beginning. Now they've gotten into sports. You know, sports was persona non grata in Vegas, or at least they didn't want to be there. Now you've got the Raiders. You've got a hockey team, the Golden Knights. The Oakland A's are moving from a dump in Oakland because Oakland's a dump. I'm sorry to tell you into a uh, a much better area now they've got f1 so th- there's a marketing strategy going on with vegas that somebody out on the mayor's office the some business leaders somebody has made tremendous strides over the past you know what 15 years or so um so congratulations to him but that's what i've noticed about vegas yeah it, 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 i know you take a few more generations i mean this is like a you know, it's probably a, gone through many hands, but people made a decision to grow something different, probably even like 30 years ago. I mean, one of the, and there's also just more people there. They were the number one, I think, of pre-2008. So basically the first seven-ish years of the 2000s before the housing bubble, I think Vegas, Vegas area, right? Not the municipality that is Las Vegas, but the Las Vegas, Nevada, you know, greater suburban area type of thing, urban sprawl, was the fastest growing populace in America. Yeah. Um, and obviously the 2008 housing bubble and stuff had effects, but they didn't lose the majority of those people, right? You're still probably talking about on the margins or on the edges. So in the 2000s, in the 21st century, there's just also a ton more people who work and live in Las Vegas, which I think it was part of their kind of what they knew they needed to do over generations. So now you have people who have lives there that are totally disconnected from the sort of Sin City vibe, right? Like uh, that. So it's a much more of a viable market. It's much more of a normal U.S. city and suburbs type of locale than it was even 30 or 40 years ago. In some respects, yes, but there's not a lot of cities that would want to take on F1, okay? Because if it, what what is in some of these columns is the enormous amount of logistics they took to put this on, they had to build this entire track. It took weeks to put this together. And so, and it's going to take a couple weeks to remove it all too. So you've got, uh, you know, an entire downtown area tied up for more than a month. And there's not a lot of cities that are specifically just into business that would want to tie up 
their business, their, their downtown central business area that long. Yeah, you could do like the Super Bowl for a week or two weeks, you know, and really it's a week for the Super Bowl. But F1, it's you're talking about five weeks, six weeks maybe even. And, but Vegas can because Vegas, where they're doing it is – it's not the downtown. They're not a bunch of bankers. It's a bunch of it's hotels. And, well, yeah, but but where they're doing it also is some of it's the downtown where there's the casinos and all that anyway, which is still just party central regardless. Uh, you know, so it's a combination. So I don't think there's a lot of cities that would would want to do that. Uh, you know, and in that regard, I think Vegas might very well become the F1. You know, U.S. capital for lack of a better term. Well, I think if you were to just sort of like sum up Vegas's transformation as a as a region, um, you know, since the late that's called the late twentieth century, is that they've embraced being N because they're not the and N entertainment capital of the globe versus a gambling capital of the globe. Now, obviously, gambling it was brought along with for the ride, but you know, this goes back to Circus Soleil and Joan Rivers, right? Like, so they've spent. A long time. And so I think now they've actually, and I think sports were the last pin to drop. Now they've established themselves. When most people think of Las Vegas, they think of entertainment, right? They think of, you know, that, and that, and in that respect, it's a company town. So they'll, you'll make affordances for anything as long, you know, you know, a steel town is going to make decisions to dump waste in a river because, you know, because they need the steel mill, right? So, like, company towns like that will bend to the will of the chief industry, and it's no longer gambling, and now it's entertainment. Yeah, well, that's kind of where I was going earlier with it, in that years and years ago, the entertainment was kind of secondary to the gambling, and the entertainment wasn't anything much more than Joan Rivers and some magicians and, you know, that kind of thing, and your uh, comedians, and, well, I guess that's Joan Rivers, and it's become more than that. It's become way more than that. And so notice, you know, now they're bringing in U2 for a month. Uh, you know, they have every artist under the sun has a residency there. Allegiant Stadium is bringing in major stadium acts, the Taylor Swifts and Metallicas of the world. Yeah, so it's become their focus on entertainment. And you're right to say that the next step of this was sports. NFL is number one, bringing the NFL first. Uh, baseball, hockey, and now this F1 thing, which granted is going to be once a year, but listen, F1 has been in other cities in the United States and it's never caught on. F1 has done other events in, in the U.S. before. Um, but this is the first time I've ever noticed it get large amount of attention, like enough to where they'll probably do it again, I would assume. And so that it's, uh, it, it is, it's not, it, Vegas isn't just for gambling addicts anymore. It's it's an entertainment capital for everyone, and that's what they're going for, at least. Yeah, and it seems like they, it seems like they pulled it off. Um, well, to go from, uh, you know, a city of stunts to a, a, a league of stunts, um, we take a look at, uh, you know, the, as we record this, the NBA, I don't even, you know, I've paid so little attention to this from just like a consumer standpoint, but we're in the midst of the, mid-season tournament of the nba which is a new new thing of in the 2023 season and resulted from their cba and you know i think we looked at it when it was a proposal which is probably a couple of years ago now or something that the nba wanted to do and rolled our eyes and i think our eyes are probably still rolling but at least from the early returns is that it, it, they have drummed up interest in a time of the nba calendar which is pretty much not important yeah i 
didn't get it then. I still don't get it now, <laughs> really. Um, so this in scene is in tournament. Yes, is going on at the moment. And the reason why I thought it was dumb, and I mean, you can speak for yourself, but I think you kind of agreed with me, which was, what is the point of a tournament in the middle of a tournament? You know, because because the regular season is a tournament in itself, and you're going to have the real tournament. At, at, you know, when the NBA finals start, what next? Uh, you know, what June or whatever it is. Um, so I didn't understand what the point of this in-season tournament is, but it turns out it's not that complicated. The in-season tournament, the point of the in-season tournament was really just to drum up interest, period. And they've done that. And, and so um, one story we found is uh, from Fox Sports. NBA in-season tournament is doing what it what it intended. Now things should heat up. Published November 21st, 2023. It's uncredited in terms of authors. And part of this is going into who's winning what and everything, but... Uh, you know, what teams are ahead, which is not what we talk about. But the major point they make here is that the ratings are up. People are talking about games. It used to be the NBA was really kind of started on TV on Christmas Day, the Christmas Day game. But this is a way to kind of shoehorn themselves into into the talking, into the sports, you know, talk sphere now. So to that extent, it works. I still don't understand the tournament, except kind of as a marketing strategy. That I get, and it's actually working. So you know, I, you know, reluctantly concede to their strategy. I think ESPN reported that their uh, ratings or audience was up 55% yeah. over similar game slots last November. That, that, that'll wake anybody up. Yeah. 55%. Cause it's kind of, it's sort of the same, the NBA kind of the same problem as did college basketball in that not all the, the you know the real basketball nerds paid attention but not a lot of the general sports watching public really catches on to college basketball until really the conference tournaments start because then you start thinking about march madness seedings and whatnot um but it's actually going on now uh, you know like college basketball is starting and this is the same problem the nba had which was People just didn't have enough time in their lives to care about the NBA a lot, except for the basketball nerds before Christmas Day. Then it started to heat up. So this is a way to get people interested now. Um, uh, you know, now the ter- the tournament results don't so much matter, really, because, again, the real trophy is being given out at the end of the year. But in this case, it's getting people interested. And it's giving all the, by the way, all the, if you don't know this, all the teams are in the tournament. You know, and then you get. Yeah, it's all participate. Yeah, and then, you know, you know, the. The lesser teams get weeded out as the tournament goes along. Um, and so it's, it's you know, congratulations to them. You know, I don't know what to tell them. Um, but, you know, we were wrong. You were right. I hate to admit that, uh, you know. Um, so the question is, what do they do? Where do they go from here? It's obviously here to stay. That's for sure. Um, but can they get more uh, media interest in it, TV interest as it goes on? Can you make it? Um, more of a thing with the fans next year. Can you broaden the appeal of it? Maybe start marketing it more and differently. I haven't seen a ton of advertisements about the tournament, particularly. Um, so I think they can ramp that part of it up for future seasons. Yeah, I think they they I think they stepped cautiously in case it bombed and was stupid, right? You, know, you don't want to go too far over your skis, yeah, exactly. so to speak. Um, and if they could do a slow build and grow and then, then kind of get to the conversation that Steve and I are having, that's probably a, that's a better slow build win than, you know, big splash and then it fail. So I think they also marketed it well. The, here's the interesting part to me. The biggest skeptics of this were actually the players. Now, they eventually when we talked, they got a pretty sweetheart CBA. So they eventually 
they eventually gave this issue up, right? So they had to agree to this. But there was a lot of grumbling on the labor side. I think what's happened is that this is in some way kicked in on the competitive juices for these players, and they're taking it seriously. Because that was always going to be, you know, if the players yada yada their way through this and continued to eye roll and say this is dumb, then you'd have a problem, right? But I think the games have become more competitive. These players actually do care. So if they're they're getting participation from what, you know, of all the sports is the most mutually kind of beneficial league arrangement between the labor and management needing labor to buy in was going to be key. And it seems that they have gotten extra effort and you got to think about the macro narratives for the NBA. What's this, you know, Oh, with load management, right? You don't get to see the stars every night. They don't, no one, no one tries till, till April. Well, you know, if you can start, you know, if, if labor here actually, rises to the occasion and actually buys in and you actually get a higher quality basketball product in November. That's why I think you're seeing that's where the, that's where that's your case for the momentum being real. Well, yeah. Also there's a financial incentive in this tournament, uh, which is $500,000 per player for the champion of, you know, of the, what they're calling the in, this is called the NBA cup. Um, and so that's the financial <laughs> As opposed to the so NBA dumb. championship, it's the NBA Cup. <laughs> this is much better, people, because it's a cup, not a championship. But 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 you know that's a lot. That's not a ton to, you know, the LeBron Jameses of the world. But it's certainly real money to mo- your average NBA player. So it's worth them kind of fighting for, I think, for sure. And it's not just do this and like it. You know, there is a you know there is an incentive at the end. But yeah, the NBA Cup is possibly the least creative name in the history of in their history of sports titles <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but you know we laugh but uh, uh, they're laughing harder what yeah but they what they ought to need to do is start renaming and you know for somebody you know the i don't know that the kobe bryant cup or something is some you know nba legend who's not with us anymore perhaps or something you know because there's the bill russell trophy is the player of the year thing that isn't the larry o'brien trophy is not the nba trophy um so they need to have some kind of tie-in with somebody to that i think um possibly the interesting thing will be, does this create a new dog days of the NBA season sometime between mid-January and mid-March? Because there won't be the excitement and we still you'd still have a ways off from the playoffs and the playoff uh, races. So does it just sort of move the timetable and, and be curious to see over the coming months and through this NBA year if they see any of that or if it just was a great way to kickstart their year? They're ho- you know, They're hopeful it'll, you know, create in permanent interest we'll see but i have a feeling you're right you know january through march may be the dog the dog days we'll see all right well that brings us to another close steve i i you can half-heartedly promote well i guess no you can get excited i'm sure draft previews and free and free agents uh to be and all of the off off-season excitement probably starting a few weeks early on the hogs die <laughs> well yeah see that we're used to it at this point though because every year there's a point in which it's over, right? Even the playoffs, the, the years Washington's been in the playoffs, we've known it's not going anywhere. You know, but every year you have a break point where then we start talking about the future. And I think that has conclusively happened for this Dallas game. We are in 
unofficial off-season mode at this point. You know, the, this competitive part of the season is over. But fortunately, we talk about this every Thursday on the Hogside Podcast, so keep up with us there. And we have all of our regular written in-season and extra content. All right. Well, we will see you in two weeks.